0: Am I going to regret having tried and failed? And I knew the answer to that was no. Who's coming with
1: The most important thing in business is honesty. You have part of my attention. You have the minimal amount. How much does your life weigh? You've got to find what you love. Are you listening to me, Sarah? I'm getting your pearls here. Have I got your attention now? Hi, and welcome to TBC, the podcast. This is season one, episode three. Today's episode is with Jessica Hayes, head of Fort Smith Montessori School. And we spend a lot of time talking about, of course, Montessori. Uh, but also, Jessica did a lot of research on Japanese internment in Arkansas. So we spend some time talking about the, the two towns in southeast Arkansas where World War II, Japanese Americans were basically in a concentration camp and the the irony of segregation in that part of the country. And we also talk about the usual stuff, books, movies, food. I think we talk a lot about food. And for all of the things that we mention on the podcast, the the Japanese internment, uh, the, the restaurants, the books, the movies, the television shows, And Montessori, of course, there are links in the show notes, so I encourage you to go to the website, tbcpodcast.com, and click on those if you want to learn more. And right after a short break, we'll get straight to the show. Kirkham Systems is a proud sponsor of TBC, the podcast. Technology can be a time-consuming headache or the tool that propels an organization's growth. At Kirkham Systems, we work with industry and business leaders to take their unique challenges and create a strategy that works for them. Technology, business, culture. Kirkham Systems is here for stress-free IT. Call Kirkham Systems at 866-658-0755. Or visit us online at KirkhamSystems.com, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Well, Jessica, Welcome. To the podcast, TBC, the podcast with Jessica Hayes. This episode is recorded uh, Seco de Mayo Day. It's also the National Day of Reason.
0: Oh, that's a good one.
1: And it's Password Day. Really? All three on the same day. So you should, before the end of the day, make sure all your password security is done so Mm -hmm. you're random passwords on all your sites and use something like LastPass or another password manager, you should uh, celebrate the National Day of Reason, I guess by being rational or whatever, (laughs) and then drink a margarita. There you go. Yeah, what a great day. Well, it's good to have you on the show. I've I've been looking forward to this for quite some time.
0: Me too. This will be fun.
1: Yeah, so... um a couple of things I've been wanting to ask you. I've, I've known you for, what, 10 years, 12, 15, something no, like that? No, not that long. Uh, three weeks? Seven years. Seven years. Wow. How do you know that?
0: Because I started at the Marshalls Museum in 2008.
1: Oh, okay. And that's when we met.
0: Wow, okay. And it's 20, oh, eight years, because it's 2016. So, there you go.
1: Yeah, math is not a strong suit of yours. Not always. <laughs> so, uh, one of the things that uh, that I've always wanted to ask you, you, you weren't married before... When I met you, right? Yes, I was. Oh, you were? Uh-huh. Okay, but your maiden name is Fulbright. Yes. So, are you any relation to the famous Fulbrights of Arkansas?
0: Very distantly.
1: Ah, okay. I've always wanted to ask you that. I didn't know. I thought maybe, you know, yeah, oh yeah, cuz uh, for those of you that don't know, uh there's colleges and I, all kinds of stuff named after <clears throat> J. William Fulbright. Uh-huh. The senator? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very famous senator from Arkansas. But uh, at any rate, and so one of the things that um, that you do, and, and what's your primary job now, is you're the head of the Montessori School here.
0: I am, for two years.
1: I did not know. I was so ignorant about, because I don't have children, never have, um, but I didn't know anything about the Montessori School, and for those listeners that don't understand a thing about the Montessori School, can you give us a description and why it's the way
0: to go. Sure. So the first thing I always tell people is that it is completely unlike anything you've ever experienced. If you've never been in a Montessori classroom, the, um, this approach to learning was actually started and founded and created by Dr. Maria Montessori. So it's not monastery and it's actually named after her. She, Um, was an Italian physician. She loved child psychology and child development. And so because it was difficult for her to practice medicine in the late 1800s, she turned her attention to creating a new way for children to learn. And she wanted it to be a way that was much more something that was much more natural for them. And she wanted an approach to learning that would bring out um, their natural development abilities. And so she spent her life honing this method. Um, The basics of it are that it's child-centered. So even when you walk into a Montessori classroom, everything is the size of the child. It's not the size of the teacher. And one of the biggest roles of the teacher, besides giving lessons to the children, is really to serve as an observer, to observe everything about them, how they interact with one another, how they approach challenges, um how they, you know, how do they approach a work that's new? Are they learning quickly? Do they need more time? Everything is specific to each individual child. And at the end of the day, what we tell our children is do your best. Um, but it's very, it's very tactile too. So there's a lot of materials in the classroom that they use so that learning can be very concrete and not some abstract um, idea that they may or may not be able to to see in their mind if that makes sense.
1: Would it be a fair statement to say that all the other private schools pretty much work the same way?
0: No. So we are a private school but um I can tell you that I would wager to guess 90 to 98% of our families are not in our school because we're a private school. They're in our school because we're a Montessori school. Um It's just, it's just a completely different environment. So to give you an example, and it's really hard to explain it when you can't actually see the materials in front of you, because that's a big part of it is the way that children learn. But to give you, um, you know, an example, I have a five and a half year old named Jameson and she has been there since she was two. My 11 year old has been there since she was three. So we've been in the school for a long time, even before I was working there. That's where my children went. Jameson at five and a half years old. She's actually not even in kindergarten. Kindergarten starts in the fall because she has a late birthday. She is doing dynamic addition. And in the Montessori world, dynamic addition is where they exchange, but we know it in the traditional terms as carrying. So she's doing math where she is adding numbers together and then care, basically if she were doing it, you know, carrying over the tens and the one hundreds in order to get her problem at the age of five and a half. That's not unusual in our school because of the way that children learn. So she does it. If you asked her what she was doing, she would tell you she was doing red card number four or whatever the number is, because we don't say, Oh, Jameson, now you're doing dynamic addition. We say, Oh, you're on the golden beads and it's time for this. And so that's what she does. We start school at the age of three. So for us, for a three-year-old coming into our school, they're not coming to a daycare. They're not coming to a preschool. They're coming to school and children are able to work at their level. So as children are able to do work, then they are given lessons and they're allowed to do that work. They don't all have to stay together. They don't all have to learn the letter A this week or the letter C or the number nine. They're working where they need to be working for their abilities. So for some of our children, that's moving really fast through curriculum for other children. It's moving a little bit slower because they need more time for their, to build their solid foundation. But the other thing about our school is when you come into a classroom, you won't see rows of desks. You'll hardly see any desks. A lot of our children do their work in the floor if they're using materials that are made for the floor. But you're also not even going to find a teacher desk. You don't have assigned seats in a Montessori classroom, and that includes the teacher. So the teachers are in the floor, at the table, wherever they need to be to work with their students.
1: I get the sense that besides the... The curriculum the the learning and science and language and math and reading writing arithmetic right, right. besides all of those things uh, I uh, I think the Montessori school does much more <clears throat> from a a cultural and social respect as well can am I right on sure
0: that? oh of course. Um, One thing to keep in mind is, you know, Dr. Montessori was, she was born in um, 1860s, 1870s. She lived through two world wars. She was Italian. And in the second world war, during the second world war, she was in India, which was a British colony. So she was to be put under house arrest because she was Italian and Britain and Italy were at war with one another she was so famous and so well-loved and just so respected that the, the Indian government gave her a lot of latitude and a lot of leeway um, and really allowed her to travel the country. And so she spent a lot of time with people of a variety of religions, a variety of cultural backgrounds and living through these two wars. She, um, she developed a very, very strong belief in the need for peace education and the need for children to learn to be peaceful. And there's a, there's a really famous quote by her that goes something that says something like avoiding war is the work of politicians. Establishing peace is the work of children. So as she was developed this time when she was during this time, when she was in India, she had her son with her. Um, and this is when she really started putting together her elementary curriculum because up until, that point, a lot of her work had been focused on children ages three to six. So she started developing this elementary curriculum and she created it based on her very strong belief that for children to be productive citizens of, she said, the universe, we might say the world, but the universe, they needed to have a respect for other cultures and they need to understand other cultures. And so that really became the core component of what we do in the elementary classroom. So our elementary students know that they do, they call it cultural work and that's what it is. And it's basically everything that's not math and language. So it's history, geography, science taught interrelatedly, interconnectedly and math and language get, get taught with them as well. But an example of how this works is, um, one of the main lessons that children get every year because they, she believed they needed it repeatedly is the creation of the universe. And so for Dr. Montessori, always starting with the concrete, our children get a scientific demonstration, basically on the big bang theory. And there's a lot of elaborate and dramatic ways that they do this, but they get this story and they learn about, you know, there was a bang and, The universe was created and they explore the scientific theories of it. So a first grader is going to do something very simple in response, whereas, you know, a sixth grader is going to do something more, um, more in depth, but then they follow up the scientific theory with the cultural studies. And so they'll study creation stories. They might study the Egyptians or the Chinese or the Christians or the Muslims or whoever, and they may change it up every year who they study, but they study these cultural beliefs, these creation stories. And with that, they're learning the history of a people, a very important people. They're learning um, the geography because they'll study where these cultures are, where these people lived. And they may study, you know, throw in some math and some creative writing in there as part of this study. So we're not saying to them, this is what you should believe. This is the answer. What we're saying is this is lots of information for you as a person to ingest and digest and develop your own conclusions about what you believe. Talk to your parents. What do your parents believe? We approach this just like we do with everything else. We want them to have the tools for finding information And we want to help them learn how to synthesize information and how to develop those conceptual thinking skills. And that's what comes through, you know, history and geography and science.
1: Now, Dr. Montessori was Catholic, right? She was. She was a nun? Is that correct? No, she was not a nun. She was just Catholic. (laughs) So I think, I think, and I could be wrong about this, but I think a lot of people have the misconception that a Montessori school is somehow a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. And... Interestingly, the very thing you just talked about, well, if you if if you uh, are in Catholicism, the Vatican says, "Oh yeah, Big Bang and science and evolution and all of these things." Uh but that's just really coincidental. It's you you guys don't really that's just
0: not part of it, right? Right, there's no religion in the classroom.
1: Right. So it's not like a, you know, a another private school that's a Catholic school or a Baptist school or I don't know what else there is Correct. around, but it's there's no doctrine, right. right? Yeah, so you guys have no doctrine other than uh, I. Well, what is the doctrine? Uh, can you summarize the doctrine of the Montessori school? I, I assume it's based on rationality and
0: it is. You know, our goal is we call, we consider ourselves to be a place of learning as opposed to a place opposed to a place of teaching. So, being a place of learning puts the emphasis on the child. The action is on the child. The child is learning. If you call yourself a place of teaching, you're putting the emphasis on the adult because the adult is doing the action. The adult is doing the teaching. So one of our big things is we're a place of learning. We're a place for learning. Um, you know, one of our others is we really just always tell our children, do your best. You make mistakes, go back and figure out what you did wrong and fix it. Um, but if we, I were going to say we had a doctrine, it would be uh, You know, it, our, it would be that we want to empower children in their learning and we want to help them find the tools to be productive and active citizens of the country, of their city, of the universe. And I think probably the final thing would be um, that we want them to take pride in themselves and pride in their work. But everyone's different and every child is different. So all of those things look different for each child that's in our school. But we, we want for them to be able to draw their own conclusions rather than us telling them all the time, well, this is what you should know or this is the truth. So where are some places that you can go and find information to discover your truth or what you believe to be the answer?
1: It, it, that's fascinating that someone... In the late eighteen hundreds, had such incredible vision. You know, that's that's really about a clarity of thought thing. So, mm-hmm. so she had the passion, she had the rational thinking, and executed it. I mean, you, you just think when somebody uses what is it, the citizen of the universe? Mm-hmm. When you use that phrase as uh, to help be a part of the, uh, you know, that's the, the phrase or, or the uh, discussion about establishing a school or establishing the education pattern of Montessori, that speaks volumes. I mean, that's like Elon Musk stuff, right? Yeah. It's very visionary. And we're talking late 1800s.
0: She, it's, you know, if you're a person that believes in um, destiny or karma or fate or people create their own... She was one of those people that was definitely ahead of her time. I mean, she was ahead of our time. She was, she was so far advanced. Um, Even today, I think a lot of people don't appreciate how much she knew. The fascinating thing about her was she was always very driven personally, and she had parents that supported education, which at that time education for women was not a top priority for a lot of people. She decided she wanted to go to engineering school when she was in her preteen years, early teen years. And it took her a while, but she got into this all boy engineering school. And then she decided she wanted to go to medical school. Everything that she wrote about, that she theorized, um, all of her work is based solely on ob- observing children. One of the best, one of my favorite stories about her is. Well, there's several, but um, one of them is that in 1907, she was asked by this landowner in Rome. It was like a tenement village or a tenement area. Um, And so the children were basically running wild while their parents were at work all day. And so he asked her to start a school. He knew of her work previously at other places. He said these children need something to do all day. So she started this school. She called it Casa de Bambino house of the child or the child's house. It was, was that
1: the, Casa Bonita.
0: Is that yeah. Casa <laughs> Bonita, like the Mexican restaurant, but in Italy, <laughs> she, um, so she did. And she decided that she was going to hire, um, just women off the street. She didn't want teachers because she didn't want to have to retrain them. So she hired these women off the street to be her teachers and she trained them. And every day when they left, they put all of the materials, which are beautiful materials into these cabinets and locked the cabinets. And then they left the room. So as fate or destiny would have it, one morning, the teachers were late for school. And the night before someone had forgotten to unlock or someone had forgotten to lock the cabinet. So when the teachers walked into the classroom, the children were there. They had arranged all of the shelves. They put out all the materials and they, they went to work without the teacher there to tell them what to do. And so that was a huge epiphany for her that a productive classroom runs just like the teacher isn't there. Or in other words, a productive classroom doesn't need a teacher. The children are perfectly able to go and do their work. So she, over all of her, over all of these years, she developed a lot of theories and wrote a lot of papers. One of her um, observations that I really like to share with people is that this idea that she called it muscle memory, and that's exactly what musicians call it. But it's the idea that you do something over and over and over, and your muscles remember it, and they it makes it hours. easier for you to do exactly. So, of course, what we know is that, but from science today is that it's the myelin in the brain. that every time you do something, the brain lays down a sheath of myelin. And so the more you do it, the faster you can do it. And as I always say, it's why you can get in your car, yell at your children, talk on the phone, and still get to where you're going without even thinking about it because your brain remembers it. And so that was her idea about education. Children should do something so much and so often that it becomes second nature to them. She also believed in movement. Our children move constantly throughout the day. Um, You know, and several years ago, there was this huge breakthrough in education that children need movement in the classroom and that children learn better when they're moving. Montessorians have been doing that, you know, for a hundred and whatever years. So she really, in a lot of ways was, was completely ahead of her time. And I mean, like I said, she still is.
1: How many Montessori schools are there in the United States?
0: Well, and that's, that's hard to say. Um, there's probably three or four thousand, but Montessori is not trademarked, and so a school that calls themselves, themselves a Montessori school isn't always a Montessori school.
1: How would you? If I was a parent, how would I know?
0: It's hard. Um, I think there are some indicators when you go into a when you go into a classroom, but if you did not know really, I mean, much about it, it would be really hard to tell. So part of it is, you know, some of the big things are, if you go into a classroom, um, you, you see a lot of movement in the classroom, the children are moving about, they're choosing their own work. However, I know of schools that call themselves Montessori schools that assign where children will be every day. You will be doing practical life, you will be doing math. It's not really the way it works. And truly, because they should be able to choose where they're going next. They're not just relegated to one area. The best place to go, if you want to know, I mean, really, if you are interested in Montessori education, is the American Montessori Society website. And if they, if they spend enough money to join um, AMS, then they're probably trying to do a lot of things right, because it's not cheap. And so you really, guys, and
1: and the one here is oh, absolutely, yeah. And you guys are doing certification, continuing education. All oh, this absolutely, to do it the Montessori way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, in my mind, I'm thinking is so. I, I'm trying to. I, I want to make sure my kids are the best educated they can be. I love the idea of uh, move at your own pace. I right. uh, love the idea of rational thought and and on a day of reason, why not? Right, right. Uh, but, it, it and, and the Montessori school is very unique compared to everybody else, and and I would assume it's very unique compared to. Is it unique in and of itself? Are there other schools that do things in similar manners that don't call themselves Montessori? Is there another? Is there another chain of? Uh, there are
0: Waldorf sto- Waldorf schools, and then there's another school. Um, I can't ever say the word it's like Regali, um which yeah which have similar philosophies to montessori uh-huh. um i'm not sure there is there is widespread
1: are, are they uh newer are they are no
0: they-, they also date i think back to about the same time well
1: it's just a it's just a fascinating thing and uh, it's it it's just it's really any anyone that cares about the education of the people that are going to be tomorrow's leaders mm-hmm. should care about not just the Fort Smith Montessori school, but any Montessori school because they are truly providing uh, the leaders of tomorrow in a matter that it really is in their best interest and everybody's best interest. So, so there's been a lot of famous people at Montessori schools, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, Julia Child, um, the founders of Google. One of my favorites, Peter Drucker, who, anyone who... Wasn't he on Petticoat um, Junction?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> Maybe. That, that was that was uh, no. Drucker's store? Well, the, Peter, the store? yeah, Peter that,
0: Drucker yeah. is, um, for people who are um, big into the business world, he's considered by many to be the guru of business management of the 20th century. Um, so, you know, there's, you have this... Well, P. Diddy. Well, there was, you go, Sean you know, Combs. Exactly, was the yeah. monastery student.
1: I'm more familiar with Sean Combs than I am Peter Drucker unfortunately. and Taylor
0: Swift. But what I like about Peter Drucker is that um, he really shows, I think, his being a monastery student that they span the gamut. So it's not just <clears throat> you know it's not just these creative types. It's really anyone can Any child can be successful, not all the parents well, can, but the children can
1: I think it and this is my personal belief, and I could be way wrong, but I really believe the fundamentals in rational thought occur at that five six seven eight year old stage
0: oh absolutely and, and
1: if you do not have the ability to if you don't formulate it properly, then uh, it's very easy to become a victim of emotions in your adult life
0: mm-hmm. and the other thing I think that stands out about Montessori schools is the ability of children to develop their conceptual thinking skills. So I read a study a couple of months ago that this education reform group, which is a whole other story, but they did a survey of, I don't know, it was like a thousand college professors or something. And 82% of these college professors said that 50% or less, and they really, it was more of the less um, of their students coming into college had con- in, con- had no conceptual thinking skills. So, I mean, and I think the really like the high point on that was like zero to 33%. So zero to 33% of children, students coming into college have conceptual thinking skills. I mean, it's less than half.
1: Do you have a... Uh... A a favorite biography maybe on Dr. Montessori that you've read that you, you know, the listeners may want to pick up.
0: There's so much stuff and it's so very dry. Um, I mean, it really is. There's a great book on the science behind it. It's really hard to read. I think if people are interested in learning more, there's a great book called understanding Montessori and the name of the author escapes me off to Google it. Um, but it's written by a woman who actually started the school in Bentonville. Marin, Sh- Marin Schmidt is her name. S C H M um, I D T is her last name. It's really good. It's a very simple, um, easy to read, it's probably 10 chapters long book that really goes into why it works so well.
1: And I'll put those in the show notes. Um So to to prospective parents Mm -hmm. that are looking or maybe not looking, let's say you bump into somebody at a party or wherever and you say, I'm head of Montessori and you know, they have a couple of kids and the age that fits in there and you know, obviously that it's a great place for them. What would you say to those parents that, uh, at least to contact you and yeah, if you're,
0: I mean, if people are interested in learning more about Montessori, They um, should come for a tour of the school. We always have people when they're interested in learning more, think they may want to enroll their child. We always start with a tour because then you can see um, what, how the classroom works. You can see children doing work. You can see the difference between like our three to six year old classroom and our fourth through sixth grade classroom. So that's always the best way. And even if people are just curious and they don't have children, I mean, I'm happy to show them around.
1: I think that's me. Yeah. Yeah. It's so. fascinating.
0: <laughs> it really is. It's...
1: Uh, I, yeah, yeah, no kidding. It really I is. I mean... Uh, it, it really is fascinating. I, and any time, you know, especially, I, I don't want to get off on a political bin here, because that's not the... This podcast is going to try really hard not to do that, but with the insanity that is in politics right now. It is so nice to know that maybe 20 years from now, we're actually producing people that are rational, you know?
0: Oh, I know. It's like, I think a lot of things of, again, not to be political, but I think for a lot of people, um, when they see what's happening in the world of education, it's why they're choosing to homeschool.
1: Well, yeah. And, uh, now I've got a little bit of a philosophical problem with that because they could just be producing more idiots. Mm-hmm. So, and I get to say that. And if you're an idiot that's listening, I'm sorry, but uh, you know that does you know it does it you, it, you, it
0: can be done well or it can be done bad.
1: Right, and it and it goes back to the deal that if you're representative of your environment, you're probably a victim of it. Too. Right. So, uh, yeah, I and it also goes to dr. Montessori's thing about being exposed to other cultures and and everything else and that's mm-hmm. why and I mentioned this in the last podcast is that that's one of the reasons why I love to travel you know in most of my travels domestic but still when you go to New-, New York City is a different place and San Francisco is a different place from Fort Smith is a different place than uh, Athens Georgia right. Uh, But there's always things to learn there, and you're always broadening your horizons in every one of those things. And especially in the case of New York, there's no other place in the world that you can go and be exposed to so much culture in such a a very small place. And so she's right about that.
0: Well, and we have a lot of families. You know, one of of the things I think that um, some people get frustrated about with – traditional schools is this idea that you can't you can't miss school during the school year because if you do then you know the class moves ahead and your child misses lessons or whatever during the week so we actually tell parents all the time if they want to plan their vacation in October or February or whatever and go on this trip we love for our children to travel and to go places And there's nothing better than them coming back to school and sharing what they've learned with their classmates because traveling is a great way to learn. It's a wonderful way for people to expand their horizons. So, you know, for us, for us learning time outside of the classroom is just as important as learning time inside the classroom.
1: Uh, one of the things that we like to do is we do we send out a questionnaire and and we talk about you know uh, the resume stuff you know like what are your degrees and uh, what are your interests and you know what's your favorite color and those kinds of questions and yours is you have a bachelor a bachelor degree in biology you've got a master's of art public history with emphasis on museum administration uh-huh. and of course you're a Montessori uh, administration certificate. But one of the things that I... And I can't remember how I um, how I found this. And I think it's related to maybe the Master's of Art here. Mm-hmm. But it was... Was it a paper? Was it your Master's thesis on uh, Japanese internment?
0: No, that was a project that I did after um, I finished graduate school. So that was my job for three years.
1: What job? Where were you working there? At UALR. Okay. Tell us... A little, because... I I was utterly stunned to know that there were two internment you camps. You didn't know that? I did not know that, yeah, and no, and I've actually out. stopped at the road on uh, one of them because uh-huh. I I travel th- I I used to travel through there a lot more, but it's kind of on the way to Northeast Louisiana where I'm right. from, and so it's real easy just to stop there, and uh, y- you know, and this kind of goes back to what I was thinking, you know, when we were working on trying to bring the marshals museum mm-hmm. here, and of course I'd like a little speck on that. You you busted your ass on it. But uh, uh, it, it goes back to that place, that geographical place that never changes even though time moves constantly. Right. There's no present. It's always the past or the future. You know, as as time's always moving. But if you can step into that geographical place, that very point on this little rock, and this is where history occurred to me, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm weird, but to me, that that gives me a connection to that, and the Japanese internment was such a, uh, you know, bang the wars of drum and, uh, nation, you know, uh, all of these these things about, you know, stereotypes and prejudice and and all of these other bigotry and everything that went along with that, because we weren't rounding the Germans up that were in America, right, and it was just the Japanese. It, can you speak to some of that a little bit? <laughs> sure. What did you learn about that? And wow, what a culture! I mean, they're, they, and then they're bringing them mostly from California. Uh
0: huh. They came from Cali- California to
1: Arkansas. On so not trains. only were they screwed over, yeah. Then they took them out of the, you know, the state of California. On top of that,
0: well, a lot of it goes back to um, to the early 1900s when the when Congress passed laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, and then later I think there was one about Japanese, but much of it was, it was based on bigotry and resentment that white California farmers had for towards the Japanese because the Japanese were so successful. They could take these barren pieces of land, you know, that were rock covered and turn them into amazing gardens. And the, um, the white people basically resented that because the, the Japanese um, and the Japanese Americans were so successful at business and everything else that they were doing because they worked really hard. And so when, <clears throat> when, uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed, they, that became sort of the trigger that the, this group that had been trying to, you know, basically keep them down or whatever for years, they were able to use that to get, um, these laws passed that were the, yeah, they basically rounded them up and put them in. Um, the term that was used was internment camp, but and to be interned implies that you were given a trial. So the real terminology, the correct co- terminology of it is concentration camp. We don't, that's not really common in our vernacular here because when we think of concentration camps, we think of, you know, Hitler's Germany. Germany. Yeah. So, they looked for, you know, no one, no one knows for sure why they sent people to Arkansas, other than there was land, because most of the camps were closer to the West Coast. So Montana, I think there might have been one in Wyoming, there were some in California, there was one in Arizona. But there were these two in Arkansas in Rower, and then in Jerome, which are down in the Delta. So you know, if you're headed to Florida, or Louisiana, you know, it's right on your way. And they put them on trains, put these people on trains and sent them to Arkansas to the swamp. And it was all swampland when they got there. Um, I'm sure, you know, whoever owned the land made a killing off of selling it to the government for this. But they were, all of these camps were, they were surrounded by barbed wires. They had guards up in towers, you know, and they would tell people, well, the guards are there for your protection, The guns were always pointed inward, you know, and the the irony, like the craziness of all of this is that if you keep traveling, you know, that road and you go into Mississippi, it will take you to Camp Shelby, which was um, a very busy base during World War Two for American soldiers and all of the Japanese Americans that were enlisted in World War Two Um, enlisted in the military rather during World War II. That's where they were stationed before they were sent out. So there's lots of stories and like Senator um, Daniel Inouye from Hawaii, the late Senator, he was, you know, he lost his, his arm during World War II, but he was um, one of those, one of those soldiers that was stationed at Camp Shelby And there was, he used to tell these stories, there was a lot of friction between the soldiers from Hawaii, and the soldiers from the mainland, because in Hawaii, they didn't round anybody up. If they had the entire economic system of Hawaii would have collapsed. So there are all these things that just scream, you know, stupidity, because none of it was logical. If the people on the mainland are a danger, but the people on the Hawaiian islands aren't. Like, where? What does that do? But there was a lot of friction because the soldiers, the Hawaii, the soldiers from Hawaii, didn't understand what the families of these soldiers in America were going through. That here they are going off to fight, and their families are locked up behind barbed wire. I,
1: were there were there families that uh, that were both in internment and Service like oh yeah but, oh that's and there, just insane. Well, and then, then there's insane. stories
0: in Arkansas, and then you know the whole, the whole Arkansas story is just really gets bizarre because then you have to think about black versus white, and so you know in the in Arkansas, there was really no place like where did the Japanese Americans fit in? They're supposedly enemies of the country. I mean they weren't, but then you've got black Arkansans and then you have white Arkansans. So there are stories about like Japanese American soldiers getting on a bus, like they get on the bus at camp Shelby to go and see their family in Arkansas, you know, behind barbed wire. Um, and so there's uh, numerous stories of a Japanese American soldier getting on the bus and going to sit at the back of the bus with a black a fellow black sol- a fellow soldier who was black. And the bus driver saying, you can't sit back there. You have to sit up here. Well, he's a friend. I want to sit with my friend. Well, you can't do that. You have to sit up here.
1: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're saying that they can't sit in the back of the bus? They have to sit up front? That is...
0: Because they, that is, they like, were not black.
1: Wow. I, yeah. never even occurred to me how... That is so <clears throat> weird.
0: It's really bizarre, but... And for these, for these Japanese Americans coming from California, segregation, you know, was something that they had no experience with, um, until they, until they came to Arkansas and Mississippi. So there's a woman, um, oh my gosh, she's the neatest woman in McGee, Arkansas named Rosalie Gould. Rosalie was, and I don't remember, I know there's a great story, but I can't remember the story, but she was the mayor of McGee for about 10 years. And she tells, she's like, every year I got sued for something. But she was the mayor for a long time. She learned one year about, and she grew up there. She grew up in that area and knew nothing about the camps. But she learned about them because when she was mayor, someone called and said, that they were bringing a group of Japanese Americans to McGee um, or to Rower to go and see the cemetery because there's there's a cemetery where the camp at Rower was and wanted to know if she would meet them. She had no idea what this was about. like She knew nothing about it. <clears throat> so she did. And that sparked her more than 20, 20 plus years of dedication to making sure that that Cemetery was maintained and making sure that this story lived on in Arkansas. She got to be really good friends with a woman named Janie Vogel, who had been the art teacher at Rower. And Janie had the most amazing collection of biographies and pieces of art that the children did in the schools. And so there were a lot of drawings, there were a lot of reflections on their views of life in the camps. Um, and so that's how that's how the story in Arkansas really stayed alive was through Rosalie and she would greet and organize, you know, these excursions of people coming from all over the world who wanted to come to McGee and visit Rower and Jerome and she would have fish fries and everything else. So when I was finishing graduate school, um, I needed a job. And basically what I ended up doing with my a woman who did my graduate advisor was um, creating a job for myself. And so part of the job was that we worked with the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation in Little Rock to put together a grant. It was about a four million dollar grant. And we partnered then with the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles on this project. It was a three year project. We did, uh, there's this huge educational curriculum that came out of it. We created a traveling exhibit and then we borrowed several. And so sort of at the end of this, the culmination of this project was that in September of 2004, we had a five-day conference in Little Rock at the Peabody. We had all of these exhibits so you could travel the city to learn about the military history and um, art. We had a lot of Rosalie's art on display And then we had like two and a half days of breakout sessions and speakers and lecturers and that sort of thing. And all in all, um, I think we ended up with, Oh my gosh, I want to say like 1200 people that attended or something. It was huge. The majority of people came from out of state. I decided that we should do a bus trip on a Sunday. We were going to do a bus trip down to this, to the sites And we worked with Rosalie and Rosalie like put on, had this lunch catered and we scheduled five charter buses. So I thought, well, that's 275 people. That's plenty of room. It sold out within like the first week. And then we ended up adding, you
1: think better of humanity, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: Then we ended up adding, I don't know. We added three more buses that day because that was all the buses we could rent for one day we had all kinds of routes that they were taking. So they weren't like just all together at these little places. And then we ended up adding another four buses, I think on Thursday Um, because there were so many people that wanted to go. And it was a lot of people who, if they were internees, they had not been back to Arkansas since they left in the forties who said that it gave them a lot of closure on their life. It gave them, a better remembrance of Arkansas than they'd had when they were in the camps. And then, um, a lot of them, you know, brought their families, they brought their grandchildren. So their grandchildren can see it and remember it and know, know their family story.
1: Well, if you, uh, George Takei,
0: he was at rower.
1: Right. And it's like, there's no animosity. And I think that speaks to the Japanese society in general of being conformist. Right. Uh, but, The whole thing about this whole story, I keep, I'm sitting here for the last five minutes where you're going. Because
0: I can drone on and on and on. (laughs) I didn't mean it that way. But
1: I'm sitting here, I've still got this visual in my mind of a bus Mm -hmm. with black, white, and Japanese. Oh, yeah. And the Japanese guy can't sit in the back. He's got to sit in the front, and he's going to visit family that's in a concentration camp. That, yeah, I think you could build a whole movie around that. Mm Mm-hmm. That is, that's a lot of cognitive dissonance that I'm really having a struggle with. The the, the dynamics, and in, in from every, just pick three people out, a white, a black, and a Japanese on right. the bus. They're not indoctrinated, and they, they're going, wow, this is, uh, I'm in crazy world, right? I, you know, and what's going through their mind could be an entire movie on that, what is, that's probably going to be, what, an hour drive? Probably, an hour bus a little ride. bit longer, maybe. Yeah, and and you could have three segments to a movie about what's going through their mind during that whole thing, and you know, and maybe it'll be a BFF or something, or somebody'll make it because it's not going to be a blockbuster unless right. we shoot some lasers or something. <clears throat> but, exactly. But I, I, I got that visual in my mind, and that's bizarre world.
0: It really is. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. But then there's not much about segregation that did make sense. So.
1: Okay, so you're stranded on an island with Wilson. That's my old go-to story.
0: Wilson the Volleyball?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Castaway. Is yeah. It, was it Castaway? Is that yeah, name that's it? it. Yeah. This is a third podcast I've done that I talk about Castaway, and I can't even remember. I do know Tom Hanks was in it. And, but as always, there's an airliner container that magically appears on the beach. And since you're such a lover of books, real mm-hmm. books, not, not the electronic, not the electronic books, books, books that I read. Right. Because I like, you know, I like to travel light. So, you know, let me, uh, as an aside, okay, I read um, the kind of the Apple-approved biography of Steve Jobs last year. While I was on the beach, just as I finished that book, reading it on my Kindle, I got a notification that said the Ashley Vance biography of Elon Musk is available. Would you like to download it now? Just released. Mm-hmm. and i said yes and i downloaded it and read it that day on the beach i didn't have to get up go to a bookstore i didn't have to order it online it was just automatically delivered right there to my little device didn't miss a beat
0: you didn't have to move i
1: didn't i was yeah i stayed on the chair the whole time yeah. right so anyway but as a lover of books that show up the old physical dead tree right. version it shows up in the container cuz my container would have a kindle in it mm-hmm. already preloaded. Right. What five books would you like to see in that
0: box? So The Thorn Birds which is one of my all-time favorite books. I've probably read it, I don't know, 80 or 90 times.
1: And the mini series.
0: Eh, I'm not a big fan. If I read the book, I don't really watch the movies. I've seen okay. the mini series, but the book's better. Um probably a second one. Oh, a second book would be Hmm. Well, right now I'm reading a really good book called Raising Cain, which is about boys' developmental uh, development of boys. So that's kind of fascinating. Um, gosh, that's hard. I uh, don't know.
1: Well, we could you could go back to I could read The Great Gatsby over and over again. I know.
0: I'm trying to think of things that I've read that I would want to read many, many times. And so many times I get wrapped up in a book, and then I finish it, and then I, can I have read to any move of the on Seneca with my books.
1: life. Yeah, are you from it? Is Seneca? <clears throat> no, I haven't read those. Uh, it's two thousand year old philosopher. No, uh, he's got letters, and there's a couple of. Good You're
0: much books. more deep, a much more deep person than I am.
1: I I, I don't think so.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just happen to know who Seneca is and read some of his stuff.
0: <laughs> I really don't know. I'm not sure. I can think of five. That's tough. And uh, that's really sad that I can't think of five books that, would, that I would be anxiously awaiting. I mean, really, I would read anything that was in there. So if I, uh, let's do a genre. So I'd love to have some sort of something hi- historical fiction. For a while, I was really into the John Adams family. I don't want to say the Adams family because I'm not talking about Morticia and Gomez. Um, they have a fascinating history.
1: <clears throat> Morticia and Gomez? Oh, don't no, the Adams. Yeah, the the, real, that, the John that, Adams family. How's right. that? John Quincy. Uh huh.
0: John uh-huh. and John Quincy. Yeah. Um, and then I'd love. Um, and then I just I like you know Jonathan Kellerman and you know criminal books that thriller books that are easy to read. And, Crichton. Yeah.
1: Well, okay. Let's do this. Let's do. Uh, do you watch? Are there some movies that you watch over and over again? Yes. Name five. Five
0: movies. Okay, well, Sleepless in Seattle. Speaking of Tom Hanks, I know, and I love You've Got Mail too. Those are great.
1: Uh, Yeah. uh, Well, wait. Both have Meg Ryan. No, I was well. I was thinking of Meg Ryan. I was thinking when Harry met Harry Harry met met Sally. Sally, The Cats Delicatessen. Yes. In New York. Uh huh. You been there? No. Okay. There's a sign right above the table where she does. Oh, where they sat. Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's just right there where Harry met Sally. Now I hate cats. The food's terrific, but I the
0: the ambiance?
1: Well, they give you a ticket when you walk in the door. And if you don't deliver that ticket, even if you're not the one paying the tab, if you don't give them that ticket back, they'll charge you
0: $50. So what's the purpose of the ticket?
1: It's to make sure that you don't walk out without paying your tab. Oh. So everybody gets one that comes in, and then the person with the ticket has to go to the one place. You know, a typical Jewish day. Right, and you, pay. You, you go and you don't do it at the table usually. Oh, and then they got festival seating, or you can pay extra and have a waiter bring your food to you.
0: So, interesting.
1: the food is absolutely phenomenal. If you're a huge fan of the movie, you, right? it's down at Soho. It's a little bit off the beaten path from Midtown. But uh, my recommendation, now that Carnegie is closed and Stage is closed, uh, Sarge's on 3rd Avenue. It's like between 37, 36, somewhere along in there. It's they're very nice. They'd love to have you. It's not crowded, and the food is... Very similar to Carnegie.
0: And it's not fifty bucks if you lose your ticket.
1: And it's not fifty. They don't treat you as a criminal as soon right. as you walk through the, <laughs> the door. door. Right, right. So anyway, I don't I forgot how we got all. Oh, the so,
0: oh, because of Meg Ryan. Yeah, Meg Ryan, yeah. So yeah. another movie that I love and I've probably seen hundreds of times is Son in Law with Polly Shore. Do you remember that movie?
1: Wow, I would never have guessed I you would have been a Polly Shore. Oh yeah. I love wow. Polly Shore. Are you do you do Will Ferrell then?
0: He's okay. I like his earlier stuff. I haven't watched much of his many of his movies lately. Elf is a good movie. Elf is funny. No,
1: Talladega I, Nights? Mm. Night.
0: Yeah. I don't know. There's something about Paulie Shore in the early days that I really. He just it makes me laugh. If you're having a bad day, it's the it's just the best movie to watch and laugh and laugh and laugh. See, I'm a very shallow person, Tom. Uh, well, no,
1: I no, <laughs> I. Uh, yeah, uh, we had uh, uh, there was uh, there was one guest that uh, the jerk, which I I'm a big fan of. Oh yeah, I yeah, like that I, movie. Yeah, the uh, the jerk. That's just Carl uh, Reiner and yeah you know, Steve Martin.
0: So Father of the Bride. Speaking of Steve Martin, is okay. a good movie. And then I think I would want to have a season of Friends, doesn't matter what season.
1: My wife was a big fan of Friends.
0: Yeah. I watch it every night over it, and over.
1: It, it, I can do that with Seinfeld. I I, never oh, got I can't into stand Friends. Seinfeld. Justin really?
0: loves Seinfeld.
1: Yeah. I wonder what that what that says about us.
0: Maybe it's a man thing.
1: Yeah, maybe. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, though. Do you watch Veep on HBO? mm that, That's all.
0: So I'm new to the world of Netflix also. House of Cards? I've seen one episode. I just started it. It's really good.
1: Yeah. But it took... Isn't that music incredible, the opening scene? Took I love that.
0: A long time to, uh, well, we had Apple TV for a couple of years, but our TV was so old it wouldn't work. Like, you couldn't, it didn't have the the correct adapters for it. So, we got a new TV this year, so we plugged up the Apple TV.
1: You know, televisions are pretty cheap.
0: I know. Okay. And But then, there's
1: something to be said for not having one, though. Well, no,
0: we had one. It was just old. But, anyway, so we got Netflix. So, I'm, I'm learning this whole, like, show binging and things that thing that people do when they watch it.
1: Meredith Davison does our, uh, marketing here. Or at Kirkham systems here in this office, that company. And, uh, she, when the house of cards is out and, and shows <clears> like <throat> that, she won't watch any of it until it's finished. And then she binge watches. And so what I pointed out to her the other day was this is the fourth season of house of cards. They make, um, Let's see, if, um, 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 thirteen episodes a year—that's fifty-two episodes.
0: It's one a day, one it's, a week.
1: Well, it's a house of cards. Fifty-two cards in a deck. So I thought, well, maybe this after uh-huh. this season, you'll get to do that because it might be the end. But they'll probably just. Dig deeper into the wallet and pay Spacey a bunch of money. Yeah, and make some more. Do it, yeah, do it some more. But, that, you know, I've gotten into it. I haven't done uh, Game of Thrones. And I'm thinking about binging on that. Because everybody rants and raves, and it's an Emmy Award winner, blah, blah, blah. Uh, have you Have you seen that? Never heard of it. Well, it's HBO. Yeah. Uh, but Veep is, is really good on HBO. And um, and I like uh, Don Cheadle, the actor. Mm-hmm. There's a, he's got a Showtime called House of Lies, where it's about uh, these uh, management consulting firms. Oh, interesting! And how ruthlessly evil they are. And what is funny is that it is funny. It's a comedy, sort of. And then Veep, of course, is a comedy. But their writing on both of those shows is so tight that I find myself hitting pause and rewind. Because every single line is witty.
0: Oh yeah.
1: So it's it kind of, but they're they're still good if you just want to just watch them through, like friends. Because right. friends is easy. I mean, you know, that's like brain dead stuff.
0: Yeah, especially when you've seen it like twenty five times.
1: Right. Well, that's what I did with Star Trek. I know every episode of Star, the original Star Trek. Star Trek. Trek yeah. Right. Right. So. What about uh, what about music? What's your five? Let's see. Every time I ask this question, I I get nailed down. Can I get a box set, or can it be five artists, or does it have to be five singles? I'll let's do five genres. What genres would would you want to have? I
0: don't even listen to that many genres. Um, So I really like singer songwriters: James Taylor, Carly Simon, Carole King, Dolly Parton. Love Dolly Parton. She was
1: on CBS this morning.
0: I love her. We took Julia to see Dolly Parton a few years ago. Julia being my oldest. Um, and we had the most amazing seats. We were on like the third row center. So we were like right in front of Dolly the whole time. It was. Did you see
1: your face? Yeah.
0: <laughs> see everything.
1: Well, I was just thinking you were kind of down low. Yeah.
0: And... No, it was really good. Good seats, good everything. It was a good show. Um, And then we see James Taylor at least. We try to go about once a year. To see him? No kidding. And here's something. Where do you go? Um, this year we're going to Tulsa. Last year we went to Kansas City. Seen him in Little Rock. Seen him in Memphis.
1: Does he play small venues?
0: He played Verizon BOK. We're going um, to the BOK. A lot of times they're smaller shows though. Like they may only sell like three thousand seats versus selling out the arena. But what's interesting, and I've decided because one year we saw we saw Dolly Parton and then we saw Taylor Swift in September. And James Taylor may have been in there at some point. So here's what I've noticed about modern day performers versus the people of the 60s, 70s, 80s. So we'll talk about like Dolly and James versus like Taylor and some of her counterparts. There is no need for an opening act. There is no need for a lot of costume changes. You don't need a big, long intermission. So when you go see a James Taylor concert, the first person on stage is going to be James Taylor. He's going to perform during intermission, which is, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. He, a lot of times sits on the side of the stage and signs autographs. And then he gets up and he finishes the show compared to going to like, you know, the Taylor Swift concert we went to where we had two opening acts. Show started at seven. She finally came on stage at like nine 30 and then of course it's eleven, and I'm like, "Whoa, this is so past my bedtime, much less you know all the children that are here." So I just think that's interesting. Like, at what point in their musical career do they get past needing all of the showmanship and the flashiness, and they just get up with their guitar Elton and sing? John. Exactly. Give him a piano. He's Billy good. Joel. Mhm. So that's something I think about a lot when I go to concerts. Is like Paul
1: McCartney. Actually, sometimes he is the opening act, isn't yeah. that, it, it, because they don't really care.
0: Well, they don't. I think, you get, I think they get to a point where it's about the music. It's not about putting on the flashiest show. Right. I saw Barry Manilow in April. That was a really good show.
1: Well, I, I suppose it could be, and I don't know all the mathematics. There's a fascinating book about uh, showmanship and promoting right. movies and concerts and everything uh, that um, I'm a big fan. He died recently. Uh, but he did Oceans 11, 12, 13. Mm-hmm. He, he's the first guy that took Elvis on tour nationally. Oh, wow. He uh, he did Frank Sinatra. He did John Denver. He made John Denver famous.
0: Love John Denver.
1: And it, it, there's some fascinating things in this book that he talks about, all these different things that he did in his life. And uh, you know the story about being able to get Colonel Parker to let Elvis do that. And John Denver wanted to get rid of his glasses the whole time and change mm-hmm. his haircut, and he wouldn't let him. And Frank Sinatra scared him to death because he booked him at Madison Square Garden, and Frank Sinatra wasn't even there like fifteen minutes before the show, and he's panicking. And Frank said, "Hey, what? You know, I told you I'd be there. I'll be there."
0: All right.
1: And he walks out, doesn't even rehearse or anything, just walks out and not, nails and it, it live television at Madison Square Garden. Anyway, a terrific entertainer. I forgot where I was going with that, but uh, showmanship. Showmanship. Well, he was a, a master at it. Broke, rich, broke, rich, broke, rich. He bet it all every time. What's on your bucket list
0: besides mm. Taylor Swift and
1: James Taylor? No, nah, Ta- Taylor
0: Swift's not on my bucket list.
1: Taylor Swift. James Taylor Swift. Uh-huh. That's like a Jeopardy answer.
0: It kind of is. Um, on my bucket list. Maybe
1: it's prices right.
0: Maybe so. Um, more travel. Mm. Lo- love to travel. Where do you want to go? Well, one thing we've talked about doing, a lot about doing, is a transatlantic cruise. So, on like the Queen Mary or one An of the ocean queens. liner, yes,
1: versus a cruise ship. Exactly. A lot of people don't know the difference.
0: Yeah. So, um, from New York to London would be fun, be interesting. You know, um, I'm not a big, I'm not a thrill seeker. So, it's not that I want to go skydiving or parasailing or scuba diving or anything like that. I kind of like to keep my feet on the ground. Um, I think there's more travel probably.
1: There was a country on uh sunday morning cbs sunday morning mm-hmm. and and there it's built into their constitution that they're required to be happy and they only let in i and I'll put this in the show notes and uh, I really wish I could remember the name of the country, but they're Buddhist mm-hmm. and it's really part of the country's motto they only let in like a hundred thousand visitors a year, although it's you know it's a little hard to get there it's up in the uh Either the Himalayas or near the Himalayas, that area of, I suppose it's around Tibet or China or, you know, India, that area there, the Middle East or the Eastern Asia. Um, but I always thought it was fascinating. They, they let cell phones in now and, and things like that, so they have modern technology there, but at some point, you know, that, that but they really and truly practice that, you know, the meditation and, or, or a lot of people do, but they still have It just seems like a fascinating country. Now, having said that, yes, I'd love to go uh, to Thailand and and South America. I've never been to either one of those. Um, I mean, the most exotic place I've been is Kiev. So where would be some countries you'd like to go?
0: So I'd really like to go. um, I've been to Spain, which was beautiful, so I'd love to go back to Spain.
1: Uh, Maribelia. Where's that? Is that around the Mediterranean? Yeah,
0: it's probably, I want to say, because I think we flew into Barcelona and then, you know, it's like an hour bus ride or something from, it's fairly close, I believe. I'm geographically challenged, by the way. Um, So I'd also like to do more exploration in Mexico. I love Mexico.
1: The Mayans.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I think, I mean, I'd like to go interesting places. Costa Rica. I've never been there. Me too. I want to be an expatriate in Costa Rica. Yeah, that would be cool. And I, I like tropical climates, so anywhere warm.
1: Yeah. I don't yeah. want to go
0: like I don't want to go to Antarctica. I don't want to go anywhere that it's I can't lay on the beach.
1: Yeah. Well and and to <clears throat> me it's like the beach time to me is almost medication. It's almost a religious experience mm-hmm. for me. And so I just like really nice clean beaches, and I have yet to find one. I was sitting next to a college president on an airplane trip last year, and he travels a lot. He's one of those guys that will get on an airplane to Frankfurt from right. Dallas just so he gets over his pl- executive platinum hump. Right. Day trip it. Th- that's what he does. I mean, he's he's obsessed. He's one of those guys that's obsessed with frequent flyer miles. So he travels all over the world all the time. I guess he does the university stuff you right. know, uh, on the plane or something. I don't know. At any rate, I ask him, We got on this discussion about what, since you've traveled so much, what's the best beach you've been to? And he's done the Thailand beach, like, uh-huh. uh, what is it? Uh, Fuck it or Fugit, however you pronounce that right. one. Right. And, you know, they're just beautiful, beautiful beaches in Southeast Asia and then Australian beaches. And, and I've been to Hawaii and you, you probably have too. They're,
0: yeah. Eh, they're okay.
1: California beaches.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, And my comment was, is that I've never been on a finer beach than the Gulf of Mexico, uh, Mm -hmm. anywhere between basically Alabama to uh, Fort Myers. Right. And my preference is Tampa, but, you know, there's certainly nothing wrong with Destin and Pensacola and Mm -hmm. Panama City and those areas. And he goes, you know what? I haven't either. Those, those, if you really want beach time. Those are good places to go. It doesn't get any better. Now. If you want to do other stuff, you know, with culture and things like that, right. or see foreign countries, yeah, go to Thailand or French Riviera or Italian Riviera or Spanish Riviera, even. And of course, there's certainly nothing wrong with Hawaii and a million other places. Well, hell, even the beach in New York would be great, you know, go right. to Coney Island if nothing else, or go to Long Island. But uh, anyway, that I was fascinated to hear that. He said, no, if you want beach time and you're just going to sit on the beach and you want to go out in the water and you want to read a book. I haven't been anywhere better than Florida, it's Gulf nice. Coast, Florida. Oh, not yeah. Miami, not not right.
0: that side. We were in Cabo in January.
1: Oh, that would probably and that be.
0: they have really nice beaches. Now, is
1: that white sand there? It was. Wow. Yeah, see, I like the. Is it powdery like the Gulf?
0: It's no, it's a little more sandy, I think. But it's it was very clean, and we didn't go in the water. The water's too cold in January. But I'm there for the beach anyway. The sand and the sun. I'm not necessarily there to go swimming in the ocean.
1: Yeah. Well, it's just to cool off. Right. Yeah. So, uh, what kind of foods do you like?
0: Uh, Mexican is my favorite. The more authentic, the better.
1: What about the, not the Mexicans, but Portuguese and uh, Venezuelan and Brazil steaks?
0: Good. I mean, I'll eat anything. I just like food.
1: (laughs) I I like food.
0: I mean, I really do. And um, one of my favorite places... When Justin and I started dating, we lived in Little Rock and he took me to this place called Taqueria Carina, which is on, I want to say it's like South 65th and Guyer Springs Road. So if you're familiar with Little Rock, it's probably not an area that most people want to go hang out in, but it was, it's the, it's the most amazing Mexican food because it's very authentic and um, it's just absolutely delicious. And oftentimes we would be the only non-Hispanic people in the restaurant.
1: What about Tex-Mex? It's okay. See, I kind of like Tex-Mex. It
0: depends. Well, it depends on what kind of Tex-Mex it is.
1: So what's your favorite uh, Mexican place in this area? In
0: Fort Smith? hmm <clears throat> Well, it depends. Um, I really like Miguel's Taqueria. It's on, uh, I want to say it's around 18th North between North and South 18th on Rogers. Mm-hmm. It's in the orange building. It's really good. Um, I like El Rito If I'm looking for something that's more Americanized Mexican.
1: On Lexington? Uh-huh. Yeah. On
0: Lexington. I like that one better than the one on 74th or 71st. And then. Forget about that one. If you want Fort Smith Mexican, then, of course, there's always wands.
1: Oh, yeah. The Chili Rolino. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. What is the, uh, the, the salsa is always on him. Uh-huh. Yeah, we have a plethora of Asian places, mm-hmm. and I'm a big fan of Tassani's down on Dodson, across from the Sparks Clinic.
0: I have not been there. Give it a shot. I need to check it. My best, favorite best
1: fried rice <clears throat> in town. I promise you.
0: My favorite place is the Faux Place on Grand. The what? There's a Faux Place on Grand. Oh, oh, yeah. Like across that, the street that's... from George's.
1: Yeah, that's been there for a long time.
0: That's my favorite, but I want to give a plug to Chopsticks on Towson. Oh, wow. They're in the building that used to be Shipley Donuts, like by Lucy's Diner. Right. Really, really good. Wow. Really cheap, too. So if you're in that area, that's a good place to go. We get that at school sometimes.
1: What do most people not know about you?
0: Hmm... That's a very good question.
1: I mean, do you collect thimbles or?
0: I don't. I don't collect. I'm not a collector of things. I'm not a fan of clutter. So when I start feeling overwhelmed by stuff, then I start getting rid of things.
1: So would you say that you live a simple, non-material uh, world life? No.
0: I wish I could say that.
1: Well, you didn't have a television.
0: No, we did have a television. Oh,
1: but it was a shitty old it one. It was an old one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: It's a box TV.
1: Wait with the tube and everything.
0: I guess you know the squares. Heavy. They're really heavy. Uh huh.
1: Jeez. really? How long ago
0: was this? So when Justin and I got married, before Justin and I got married, in we got married in two thousand and two, he bought a television. He bought me a TV because I had a I had a thirteen inch television when we started dating, and he didn't like that. So which it was really small. <clears throat> so he bought. He bought me a TV for Christmas. That was about 2001. So we had that television until we moved into our current home, which we moved there in 2013. So for 12 years, we had this like 25-inch big box television, and the color was going out on it too.
1: I'm not going to say this because... I don't want people to think that all doctors are rich, but your husband's a doctor.
0: Yeah, but TVs are just not that important to us.
1: Well, that's my point, and yeah. that's why I bring it up. And yeah. I think that's uh if it's not important to you why, why I mean bother? we
0: watch TV, but having a big fancy 50-inch flat screen television is not is not the most important thing to us.
1: Well, I I have a 60 in the den. Right. And I paid like four hundred bucks for it.
0: Well, they are cheap. So when we moved into our new house, we got we got a new television. But the TV in our bedroom was still one. That, but you
1: have an Apple Watch on your wrist. I do. Okay, so I, I just want to we we'll just. Put but it if all you ask me
0: how many things I can do with my Apple Watch, I would tell you probably three. So I like tech. This okay. So this is something people probably will find odd about me, or don't know about me. Is that I really like technology. Like I love my Apple phone and I love my Mac computer, but I'm not patient enough to spend lots and lots of time figuring out how to use all the bells and whistles. Uh, and So neither I am could I. have a much simpler phone if they made them for the things that I do want it. I
1: I think that would hold true for the watch for me. Yeah, same I do thing not there. have the patience for it. Mm-hmm. I, and I I and quite frankly, I think Apple could have done a better job on the user interface because sometimes the crown does something and sometimes the button does something right. and it's inconsistent. Uh and I think Gruber wrote a really good uh blog post on that just recently. But regardless, uh an iPhone, uh it has to be a smartphone. I there's no way I could go back.
0: No, I don't want to go back to my flip phone or whatever I had before. I want those
1: apps there. I utilize that tremendously, and I go to the trouble of learning how to kill apps and free up memory and just and things like that. The uh, but so but uh, and I'm the same way. I'll buy any gadget that I think appeals to me, like an Amazon Echo. I had no idea if it would really become a part of my life, but it has, Mm -hmm. and it's the best vocal assistant out there it's by far better than siri siri pretty much sucks compared to alexa they have different purposes and the alexa's got seven microphones and and it's in a controlled environment it's plugged in all the time and everything else so i can understand why it works better but when you get to the watch i go meh nah. it's sitting on the nightstand charging as it has been for two weeks now that i since i've worn it the kindle is one of those devices that the, the earlier ones where you had to use a little scroll bar right. thing back and forth and all that. Oh, Jesus Christ. That was just a just crap. Uh, and so I had a love-hate relationship, off-and-on relationship with the Kindle. Mm-hmm. When the Voyage came out, or no, the the Paperwhite came out, touchscreen, uh, front-lit LED, which all of them are uh, now, instead of back-lit. Instead right. of staring into an iPad to read a book, it's natural. Uh, once I got that one and I started using it to read books and forgot that I was using technology, mm-hmm. then that technology faded into the background and that's when I learned to love it. But it was up, it, but it was, it, then I learned to love not having to carry the books, not having to flip the pages. Right. Uh, but it it did eventually fade into the background, but it took time for that to happen because at first, you know, the first book or two, probably no more than two books, first book or two I read, I was always conscious that I was using a Kindle. And then you got to take the time to get the font right and, you know, the font size and the font type right because Mm -hmm. the default one just didn't work. I wanted real clean type. But it did finally fade in the background and that's when I... Said, "Well, I'll never have anything but a Kindle." Uh, but yeah, I get what your point is. Yeah, so but I don't. I, th- I don't do hi-fi equipment anymore.
0: But I still use. I use a paper calendar. See, I can't I use. I can't use an electronic calendar. I have to be able to see it and write it and look at it whole picture, not just on the on the yeah, screen.
1: I can't. I can't do a paper. I have to have electronic. Yeah. And our, our marketing manager Meredith that I mentioned earlier. She's. Mm-hmm. Uh, she went to Gonzaga. She's, uh, I guess late twenties, early thirties. Sorry, Meredith, if you're listening, I'm just speculating about you. But, um, anyway, she does her calendars on paper and you would think that living in Portland, Oregon, that it, everything's about apps and everything. Right. Mm, no, she's old school. So yeah, I get it. I mean, if it works, it works, right? Well, exactly. There's no, there's no best way to do anything.
0: Right. You got to do it's, it. It's just like we tell our students, you do your best and you do what's best for you.
1: The true Montessori way. That's right. All right. That's
0: it. Thanks Tom. Hey,
1: uh. Thanks for being on the show.
0: That was fun. We'll have to do it again. Yeah.